Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Here with us today is J.P. Gounder, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to talk about the future of jobs. Welcome, J.P. Thank you for having me. So, J.P., let's start with some history. 5.6 million jobs were lost in manufacturing in the U.S. from 2000 to 2010. And we just went through an election where the narrative was that the primary cause of that was globalization. And the same narrative you know, can exist in Europe as well. Uh, the Center for Business and Economics Research at Ball State actually said that 85% of the reasons of that was actually automation. So 4.7 million jobs of the 5.6 were lost due to automation, not due to globalization. You've just concluded some research that actually sort of furthers the case. Let's start with where your research is and what you found in terms of the impact of automation as we look forward in time. Yeah, so there's a big gap between uh, the number of jobs that are being created out of the automation economy and those that are lost. So in other words, people are losing their jobs at a rate of about 7% equivalent jobs every year through 2027. Mm. That's the finding of our uh, research. Now, there is a separate track of job creation as well. Think of it this way. If you start to use physical robots, like a a physical robot at the front of a store that greets people and maybe even takes them to their item that they're asking about, this is something you can see at Lowe's, for example. Right. Um, You need a repair person for that robot. So there are some jobs that are created in response to automation. But indeed, automation is one of these tectonic shifts that matters in the same way that globalization matters. It is certainly reshaping the way that people create, the way that people manufacture, and even the way that we serve customers in things like call centers, if you think about uh, the kind of robotics that is software robotics. Right. And it's been, it's been happening for a while, and I think the, the argument going forward is that the different type of technologies that are part of the automation game going forward – So can you talk a little bit about what kind of technologies you're referring to when you say automation? Right. So in our report, we think about it in terms of the kinds of tasks that you are undertaking. And we think about physical tasks, which are exactly what they sound like, anything from construction to lifting, you know, things in a a factory. Um, We think of intellectual tasks, which are thinking about something or maybe deducing an answer to a question, which might not be thinking so much as referencing. And we think about customer service tasks. All of us have, especially in the United States, we've all experienced going to the checkout counter at a grocery store and self-checking out. That involves a great deal of automated technology where the machine is actually helping you to do that, much as ATMs or uh, kiosks at the airport. So physical, intellectual, and customer service tasks Each of them has a somewhat independent dynamic to it, uh, but each of them are eating into the base of jobs that we do have. Right. When I think of – I'll just start at the intellectual. And when I think of intellectual, the typical thought process of automation is it does very well in high repetitive tasks. There's a difference between I've conceived of it, I've designed it, and now I do it again and again and again. And so is there a difference in the way I should think about it between designing something or thinking of something new or or using the brain in very creative ways – versus more of a calculation or permutation kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, where we've seen success up until very recently has been in that repetitive task. We want to get those off of your plate as a worker. What is changing is the sophistication of artificial intelligence is allowing us to do more than just the repetitive tasks. Some of these are highly inductive. One big success in this area has been in the area of uh, legal software. Uh, e-discovery software, it's called. So it used to be that when you would have a big corporate legal case, 
You'd have an army of paralegals who would spend hours and late nights, you know, reading through every single email or every memo, every communication, and all of the case law. Now you have software, e-discovery software, that can do that in in 24 hours. Yeah. Now, what's interesting in the legal case is that those paralegals actually didn't go away. They've actually tended to upskill to more strategic activities for the most part. During the period of rollout for e-discovery software, we actually saw an increase in the number of lawyers and paralegals. Oh, interesting. But here's the thing. We would have seen a bigger growth in that job category if we didn't have Mm e-discovery. So sometimes the job loss is not someone gets laid off. It's a job that would have appeared – uh, except we don't need it any longer. So I mean, one way to look at this is, is linear by saying whether it's a net job loss or the avoidance of new job creation, as you described, uh, sort of argues that we're sort of entering into a place where we can expect unemployment rates to go from sort of an average of 4 to 7 percent to 10 to 12 percent. And that sort of ignores the idea that there's a whole job creation from innovation that could take place. And the reference point here would be the app economy that we're currently in, which very few people would have envisioned in the early 2000s that we would have created this entire economy that's that's employing a whole bunch of people. And so, w- what is your what is your thought process on the job creation from all of this innovation? Well, all of this innovation, as you say, there there are sort of two sectors. One is related to automation itself. One is related to adjacent technologies like mobile phones and, and apps. On the automation side, you know, I referenced you need to have a robot repairman, that is not a, a, a sort of, you know, cavalier statement. In fact, that is something that is happening. Um, you will see, for example, the Pepper robot from SoftBank. Uh, it is sort of rolling out very slowly, but in a lot of trials, where it greets you at the front of the store. It has a kind of naturalistic, um, you know, way of interacting with people. And it, it's a wayfinding mechanism, basically. But you need someone to actually make sure that that a uh, robot is up and running. You need somebody who can actually program it. It's actually a really good blue-collar job um, mm-hmm. to have yep. something like that. Yep. And behind the scenes, it's a design, the conceptualization of that, the design oh, of yeah. that, the production of that. It sort of creates, you know, in this case, a fundamentally different kind of product, thus a different kind of marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, and you're going to see, you know, we we it's cliche, but STEM jobs really matter mm-hmm. going forward. And some of them are wedded. Science matters. Science matters. Science mm-hmm. matters a lot. Engineering matters a lot. You know, it's it, it's wedded to this understanding of design as well. I mean, if you look at the Pepper robot specifically, one of the things that uh, is enticing about it is how naturalistic it is. It has arms. Its eyes will follow you, hopefully not creepily. And um, <laughs> But all of that required high-end creatives who are user experience experts, who are artists, who can actually conceptualize uh, an automated entity that interacts with people in this really natural way. Right. So all the people that are good with human beings still have a big role to play because they have to make that whole interface work in a very human level. Yeah. If it's going to to create value for customers, it does have to connect human-wise. I think on that app economy point, of course, there there is this sort of generalized sense that um, there's an entrepreneurial opportunity. The flip side of which, though, is that many people may not have the same job security, right? Yeah. So if you're if you're writing iOS apps for a living, um, well, you could be one of those few people who hits it big, or it could just be one of many revenue streams in your life. Um, so we do, as I think as a society, we face this moment where uh, technology both takes away jobs, it also empowers them, but then it has limits to that empowerment too. So this idea that there will be jobs that won't be created and then new jobs that we can't even conceive of yet or some that we can, 
sort of doesn't argue that there's winners or losers or there's gains and losses. It argues that there's a there's a sort of a change in the nature of the economy itself, whether that's a comment about the nature of the jobs or the um, stability of those jobs, the safety of those jobs. Is that how we should think of the economy going forward? Is that it's just it's just different? It, it operates on different dynamics. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, of course, there are instances where automation is being used to uh, do something existing in a more productive fashion. There, there's this field called robotic process automation, which is essentially putting these little robotic workers to do things like call center, and they're much more sophisticated than the old-fashioned IVR. Um, but they're basically adhering to the existing business process. Right. Where we're moving is the ability to really reshape your business process in complete ways. And that, that could involve uh, significant redefinition of your supply chain, for example, getting rid of entire parts of, of things that you used to do in the old way. And it's, even like drones for fulfillment. I mean, that's a big, big well, conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Very interestingly, drones aren't even where it's at at the moment. It's Starship Technologies. If you've ever seen these little uh, delivery robots, they roll around. They've been rolling around the streets of Washington, D.C. and London and other places. And they're being used to deliver takeout food. Wow. Um, they are delivered out of a van. And the van drops off a whole bunch of them with their food. They come up to your door. They ring you. You come down. You punch in a code on your phone. And the security unlocks and they give you your pizza or whatever. Right. So there, there's a lot going on in, in delivery as you know an example, which redefines that experience. But I think the key thing here is all of the ones that are succeeding are doing so because they provide customers new value. Mm. This is not just a cost-cutting uh, exercise. And one of the things I want people to get out of my research is think about it through a con- customer-centric lens. We've been through a period where we've done a lot of cost-cutting just in general out of our technology. And um, I think we've gotten to the bottom of that. Now we're at a point where these kinds of technologies are being used to acquire new value. So, JP, what you're referring to is previously automation was done to cut costs, but now it's to be more customer-focused. That has to be the core reason why people are embedding automation into their organizations. Right. I mean, and if you, you think about this in a very accessible example, people used interactive voice response, IVR, on call centers because it was cheaper. Now, unfortunately for most IVR players, it wasn't a very good customer experience. Um, I mean, there are whole strains of comedy around, you know, experiences with hierarchical menus. I already pressed one. Um, you know, so, it, it's like Dante's level at that point. Oh, which level hell am I in? Yeah. And and so the the next generation, the next wave, including in call centers, there's a company called Smart Action, which does what it calls um, interactive voice automation because it's so much more sophisticated mm-hmm. in its naturalistic linguistic uh, capabilities yeah. that uh, it's actually answering questions non-hierarchically. Certainly it's not perfect, but it's hitting that trajectory where we're starting to see a takeoff. And you have to think customer first, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly for customer facing, but not even just for customer facing, right? Yeah, I think we want to kind of touch on that, right? That it's not just these typical jobs that you think automation is either taking over or supplementing. You mean like blue collar in the manufacturing base? Exactly, but others. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, I think uh, I'll start with one more blue collar because it's a very good example of how customers benefit from 
invisible automation, mm-hmm. and that is um, Amazon bought Kiva Systems in 2012, so five years ago, to reshape uh, their entire just-in-time delivery model. Mm-hmm. Those robots are pretty critical to the way that they are able to uh, hit those key deadlines that they give to their customers. Um, you now have next-generation companies like Fetch Robotics who say, okay, the Kiva robots require you build a special uh, warehouse. Mm-hmm. Fetch is saying, we'll take any old warehouse and we'll retrofit it with hyper-intelligent robots who can just figure it out. Um, another company called Athon is doing that as well. Mm. Now, of course, it's not just physical robotics. And you know, one of the areas that's been interesting is to look at things like oncology, right? So the mm-hmm. study and treatment of cancer, which right. uh, IBM Watson has been very associated with at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Mm-hmm. It's a huge undertaking. Uh, but they're starting to see results where maybe sometimes the very rarest forms of cancer can be detected in a way that, frankly, humans would not have done. Um, and then the question becomes, can they make it a more general tool? Uh, overall, though, they're not replacing doctors. Right. You know, what they're doing they're at re- the moment. They're not replacing judgment and decision-making per se. They're actually giving better tools for those types of things. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's transforming the way that the doctor's job works. So, JP, this is not really sort of losing jobs or losing potential jobs or gaining new jobs. And this is in the same job, I'm really transforming the very nature of work. Yeah. Oftentimes, that's what we're going to see over the 10-year time frame that we have put together in our analysis. Mm. Beyond that, of course, it's anyone's guess because these technologies are getting better all the time. Think about data scientists. I mean, they have an unprecedented ability to get uh, pre analyzed data that combs through these huge data sets. And frankly, that's what data scientists even five years ago used to spend their time on. Now they can, again, be more interpretive, they can be more action-oriented, and they can take part of that off of their plate. So working side-by-side with robots is how I talk about it, whether that means that I am a retail associate at Lowe's and I have a robotic colleague who literally rolls around helping customers, or I'm using software to make my job easier and uh, more enjoyable and better. Um, either way, I'm working side by side with a robot. So as we go forward, there's going to be skills that are highly sought after. This is going to be sort of an arms race for the skills that are probably scarce in market. And it's not strictly in the manufacturing sector again. It's across all sectors. So this this is a race for talent. Could you give us a sense of what kind of skills or what kind of jobs will matter most for the people who are thinking of acquiring those talents or thinking of how do I insource or outsource that talent? One of the concepts that we've developed is this concept of what we call RQ, uh, which is sort of like IQ, except rather than being your intelligence quotient, it's your robotic intelligence quotient. And so this is an idea that many, many jobs will themselves change such that you will have a, a qualification that says, not only do I know how to use software package X, Y, and Z, but I am conversant in working with these various types of intelligences. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a more collaborative claim rather than I know how to poke something out on Excel. Right. So that would be one thing. Most jobs will, will gain an RQ quotient. One of my favorite uh, sort of unexpected jobs out of this is really in change management, which sits in the HR function, which is to say when you have people who literally could be receiving instruction from machines, um, that you need a a sort of change management function to help human workers learn how to do that. Um, Creative jobs will continue to thrive and flourish, whether that's a UX designer or a very interesting recent example I interviewed a company and they said, okay, we implemented an AI system for a conversational interface with our workers and later our customers. 
we had to hire fiction writers because, frankly, no one knew what a natural conversation looked like. No Mm -hmm. one had the skill set. So they went out and hired people who were novelists to actually write down these conversational scripts. Um, you're also going to find, of course, the, the the typical STEM professions, but they're going to be, you know, moving to this new world where AI tools uh, are – it's sort of an AI first world rather than just sort of programming language X, Y, and Z. Right. And we had a discussion uh, with Brian Hopkins about the new technology revolution and part of that discussion dealt with the idea that, you know, technology is going to be a core differentiator of a business. In fact, for most businesses, it will be their business, whether it's a bank or a retailer or whatever it might be. And the board now has to master technology for it to really govern the business. And the CEO has to master technology to govern their business. Is the same true here where the board and the CEO and the leadership team have to master this RQ quotient to run the businesses of the future? Yeah. I mean, I I think certainly in the latter part of my tenure trajectory here, this is going to become a very big issue in the the 2020s timeframe. You also have to imagine, you know, you're going to have self-driving vehicles that are going to be doing errands for your business. There's a whole host of different kinds of RQ moments from, again, physical tasks, intellectual tasks, customer service tasks. It is not yet, I think, on the board... uh, agenda. It is not yet, I think, on the CEO agenda. The CIO may be there, some some CMOs as well who are thinking about this. Um, but over time, we are going to have to acquire an understanding of that. And I do agree that this becomes a core competency of a sort. Uh, depending on what vertical you are in, it may be a different automation technology, but there are going to be core technologies that must become a competency for you. If you simply wait for external parties to do this, you're going to be uh, undifferentiated. Right. The 2020 is not that far away if we think yeah. about it, right? So when you're saying it's not on the CEO's or board's agenda, I mean, it should be soon, right? They should have a strategy in place of how to deal with the automation, the dynamics between their employees and, you know, these robots. Yes. They need to remember several things. You know, going back to our earlier commentary, it's really important for senior leaders to understand that this is no longer just about cost cutting, yep. that this is no longer um, a world in which, you know, the most explosive forecasts say 50% of jobs are going to be lost. Don't come at it with that time frame, uh, that, that sort of mind frame. Come at it from the perspective of this is a critical differentiator. I need to continue to up my game in how I interact with and serve my customers and have a function in place who is keeping an eye on this because there's so many technologies coming out at the same time. You need to have a, a pair of eyes looking at them. Right. So it's not strictly R&D. This is a lot of sort of R&D plus experience design because you have to have the, the human quotient, the, the customer mindset in terms of what value am I delivering to the marketplace for this automation to be truly valuable. Yeah. And remember that some of this is going to be coming from major vendor platforms. I yep. mean, you could think of AI, for example, as being somewhat akin to where cloud was 10 years ago. There are major AI platforms riding now over the clouds of Amazon and Microsoft and IBM that are... Uh, tools you can use to build better applications to solve your problems. Of course, you're going to be sourcing that. You're not going to be inventing your AI from scratch. But when we say AI becomes a core competency, it is taking and sourcing the right technology to solve the problems your business has for your customers. Earlier, you said, what kind of products and new markets a form of anyone's guess? And I want to come back to that because the innovation is kind of the responsibility of the CEO and the leadership team because they have to marshal this automation to be first to market or at least be in market with some of these new experiences that people right now can't imagine. 
So what if I'm one of those people, how do I start thinking about it? How do I start tooling myself up to sort of go at new products and new markets so that just simply don't exist right now? Right. I mean, of course, that is a very tall uh, order when we say, yep. well, we're going to create an entirely new market. But if you are a large, global, you know, billion-dollar-plus kind of company, um, you need to start experimenting. Now, you might start small. You might start in a very specific area. Um, you may run some pilots and trials and test out that business value. But ultimately, I do believe that this is the case. I mean, this is the world of, you know, digital predators and digital prey. Yep. Uh, and in some sense, if you don't invent the future as a lighthouse customer, you will be eaten by it at some point. It's always hard and tricky to figure out the exact time frame. Um, I but, see but, a lo- but it has to be now part – this innovation cycle has to be a routine part of the business. It can't be the exception or the intervention. Yeah, and, and you know – for some organizations, innovation is kind of a hobby yeah. on the side, and innovation needs to be more strongly woven through this, and automation is a key part of that. You know, I see companies um, in the financial services sector struggling with this. There are a lot of fintech startups who are using AI tools, and the big players are saying, well, we don't even do that. Uh, so they either need to partner with or acquire or figure out a way to do that because they're they're not yet doing a great job of it. But, you know, this is a great example. You'll see more and more investment in robo-advisors, mm-hmm. customer-facing, scalable intelligences that can really help you uh, as a customer um, at a price point that you couldn't afford unless you were very wealthy before. Solves a customer problem, great investment, learnings for the future. So, JP, let's return back to the numbers for a second. Due to automation, your forecast says there's a 17% job loss going forward and a 10% gain. So it's point, a difference of seven points. By 2027. Right. But that's strictly from the standpoint of automation. And that, that does not sort of consider sort of the generation of things like an app economy where innovation creates things that can't leave. We just can't see yet. So is that the right way to look at the numbers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, on the one hand, that net 7% job loss from automation is a very big number. It's tantamount to what we saw in the Great Recession. Yeah. It's nothing to be trifled with. But on the other hand, you know, as you referenced, there are adjacent technologies that are creating opportunities for innovation whether it's the app economy or the Uber economy or however we want to think about it. The key point is something will need to fill that 7% gap. So this is a, a big topic. This is talking about the fundamental nature of our economy and the role of innovation, the role of technology, and the cool world of robots. Um, so in your mind, what does it all mean? What it all means, I think, for our executive listeners in particular is that you need to start taking seriously the idea of having a strategy for automation I think at this point, um, people at the executive level are, are sort of overwhelmed with, uh, you know, prescriptions. Well, we need to take into account IoT and we need to take into account innovating better and we need to take into account the cloud and whatever. All of these things are pretty deeply in, interrelated on the topic of automation, which automation takes all of those technologies and puts them into a system that creates its own momentum. If you don't have a board-level discussion about this, much more frequently than you are today. If you don't have a way of sort of making sure that this gets throughout the the organization, it isn't just a hobby that you talk about once a year. Unless you have a plan for how your human resources department is going to intermingle AI-based workers with human workers, that's the digital workforce of the future. It's quite mixed. If you don't have these things in place, you're going to lag You're not going to make the right investments at the right time, and you're going to get left behind. JP, this is a huge topic, and I'm sure we'll be uh, returning to this sometime soon in the future. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Thank you. 
If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.